Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. I, I, always, I think Cinco de Mayo is like the funniest holiday too because like I, I, my, my friend is from Mexico and he was telling me one day, he's like, you Americans, like you love to take people's culture and just find reasons to drink. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, listen, you did it to the Irish. Like St. Patrick's is like a holiday about a, a saint who brought the gospel to Ireland. And you guys are like, let's get drunk. And then Cinco de Mayo, he goes, I don't know if you know this, we don't even celebrate it in Mexico. Like it's not Independence Day for us. Like there's one little place called Puebla and they celebrate it. The rest of us don't even care. It's like a Budweiser holiday, dude. And I was like, oh, whoa. So that, that's, that's, that's <laughs> you know, and I started looking into it. And actually Cinco de Mayo really is kind of an American holiday. Like it was actually, and my friend told me this. He, he said, listen, he's all, all it was is we beat the French in this battle. Like, Really? Like, yeah, who doesn't beat the French, right? <laughs> Coming from a Vietnam vet, he can say that. So anyways, so, so here, here's the thing. Yeah, it, it's true. Who doesn't beat the French? And, you know, so we celebrate Cinco de Mayo and whatever. It's a fun day to have tacos and, and, and all that. But today, we're going to um, talk, we're going to baptize some people today, hopefully. And we're going to talk, we're going to continue our series, Life's Toughest Questions. And um, over the last couple weeks, we've been tackling some of the tougher questions and, um, I want to invite you, one, I want to say good morning to those that are listening online right now. And if you're listening on the podcast, that's awesome. Good morning to you guys. And then um, I, I want to just, I want to plug something really quick. I don't know if you know this. Our children's ministry over, over the last uh, probably six months has grown by 35%. Okay, that's a lot of kids. And it's awesome. And I heard Pastor Scott sharing this. And I didn't share it in the last service, and I should have. Um, one of the cool things about children's ministry is um, you have the opportunity to really change someone's destiny. Um, and he talked about, like, he went to VBS, and they planted John 3.16 in him. And then he went off, and he worked on his testimony, and he was a juvenile delinquent, and, you know, he still is kind of. Um, <laughs> that's why he's my friend. Um, but then, because someone planted it in him, God made it grow at some point in his life. And I want to encourage you, right now is, is a great time to get involved in our children's ministry. There's a lot of um, kids right now, and we're always looking for people that want to get involved. And you may think, like, I don't know, I don't know if I'd be any good. You may be surprised. I, met, I have one friend, his name's Michael, and he uh, got involved in our fourth, fifth, and sixth grade ministry. And I remember he was like, I'm a little nervous. I don't really, I'm not really good with this. And, you know, I was a businessman, and I, you know, I was about making the dollar, and I came to church, and I was faithful, and I tithed and all that. But I don't know about serving children's ministry. And he did it his first week, and he's like, that was really hard. I hate that. And then he did the second week. That was really hard. I hate that. But he just kept at it. And um, he's about two years into it now, and he'll tell you, those kids changed my life. And, it's, and, and, and I want you to know something. You want to be part of a ministry that really has an effect. I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, but, um, you know, kind of birth to 12th grade, those are my favorite ministries because I feel like they really get the gospel going. Because how many of you accepted Christ when you were little? Show of hands. And then you went to work on your testimony? <laughs> yeah, me too. So anyways, 
I encourage you to get involved in that. If you want to, fill it out on there. So today's question that we're going to tackle is this. It's how can Christianity be the one true faith when church history is littered with violence and oppression? How can it be the one true faith? You know, when you, when you study history, it's just littered with violence and oppression. And for some of you, um, you've been loving this series. Others of you, you're like, listen, it's not enough. I need more answers. And I want you to know something. Um, I don't know if I can provide the answers you want in 30 minutes, okay? Uh, who am I fooling? In 42 minutes, all right? <laughs> That's just the reality of it. But my hope is, for, for those of you that need more, is that it's wetting your appetite because there's volumes and volumes of people that have written on this. And you can go to the greats like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and even, you know, the newer guys, the Lee Strobels, the Greg Boyds of the world that have really tackled these questions, the Ravi Zacharias's, and you, you, can, you can get the answers you need. My job is to help kind of satiate your hunger for it. So why, and, and I, I encourage you, get in a growth group too. And discussing it with other people, that, that actually helps you kind of flesh it out. I lead a men's group on Thursday nights here at the church right now. And if you're a dude, I'd love to have you at it. It's awesome. But what, how can Christianity be the one true faith when church history is littered with violence and oppression? Well, I'm going to let you in on a little something. If you have your outline, you can pull it out. And here's this, guys. Um, I want you to know that all history is littered with violence and oppression. It's not just church history. It's human history is littered with violence and oppression. And it's really easy to lump the Jesus people in like they've been worse than human history. But I'm, I want to I show you actually that, that's one, it's not a fair standard. And two, um, you know, I want you to look a little deeper than what God's people do. And what did Jesus do? Because the truth of the matter is, if you're a Christian and you're in this room, do we have any hypocrites in this room? Yeah, the pastor too. And the truth of the matter is, that's why we're Christians, because we are sinful, and we can't live up to God's standard. We don't have the ability to, and that's why, you know, sometimes people think Christianity is about being good, and then you go to heaven because you're good, and it's the opposite. We've come to the conclusion that we are sinful and separated from God, and we need His grace. We need His grace to empower us, to fill us, to forgive us, to keep us going, and therefore... That's why we believe in Jesus. And to hold us to the same standard as Jesus, we're just letting you know we're going to fail you every time, especially this guy. So, history is littered with violence and oppression. And I've heard it said before, it's kind of a common fallacy. You'll hear it in college. You'll hear it in um, your, your high school history class. Sometimes you'll have a teacher that'll say it. They'll say, more people have died in the name of Christianity than all the wars put together on the planet. Or they might say more people have died in the name of religion than all the other wars put together on the planet. And I'm here to let you know that, that I'm a myth buster because that is actually a complete myth. That is not true whatsoever. I want you to understand that. I'll just give you a little example. In the 20th century, um, Joseph Stalin and Chairman Mao together killed 120 million people in the span of 40 years. That equals, I mean, that you could take all the truly Christian wars that, the, that were re actually really Christian, put them all together, and it's a fraction of what Stalin and Mao did in the name of secular humanism, in the name of godlessness. The ones that said religion was an opiate to the masses killed the most. Mao killed 43 million people in four years. I want you to think about that. So, so right away, that's not really a true statement. 
As a matter of fact, um, as I, I began to really look into that, I wanted to see, okay, well, what do they consider religious wars? And the skeptics, time and time again, they pointed out things like, oh, the, the U.S. Civil War was a religious war. I was like, what? You know, and here's why. Because I, I, I get it. I get, I get where they're coming from. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, there were Christians that were, that were purporting slavery, and they, they went to war for that. And I want you to know something. Yes, anytime there's been something... There's always Christians on the wrong side of history. But I want you to know something. In human history, the people that were first to stand up against slavery, to fight against slavery, were Christians. Okay, so there were Christians using the Bible to justify slavery, but there were Christians using the Bible to tell you that that was wrong, that it was sinful, that it was against God, it, that, that, that whether you were black, white, blue, yellow, purple, whatever color you are, you were made in the image of God. So, I need, I need us to un understand something. Wars like that have nothing to do with religion. Slavery had everything to do with the mighty dollar, didn't it? See, because here's the deal. There were people getting very rich off of free labor. And they, they may, some of them, not all of them, some of them used religion as a front, as a thin veil to kind of veil their real agenda, and it was money. That's the truth, truth of the matter. It had nothing to do with religion. Or um, I remember, you know, when I was, uh, I was in Israel, and if you want to go, I'm going to be taking a group to Israel in March of next year. I, every other year I take a group. It's amazing. Um, I was in Jerusalem. We went to the Holocaust Museum one year. And um, while you're there, you'll see a lot of different quotes from Hitler. And um, there, there are people that actually will tell you that World War II was a religious war. And here's why, because there's a few statements where Hitler stood behind a thin veil of Christianity and, and tried to use that as his backing. He also, you know, the, the, the state church of Germany that he was in control of, that he pulled the purse strings to and the power over, never spoke out against uh, what he was doing. And the Catholic church in Europe at the time stood back and didn't say anything either. The Pope didn't. But I want you to understand something. Do you know who some of the first people within Germany to try and stand up against Hitler were? It was Christians. That's why they got sent to the, to the um, concentration camps as well. As a matter of fact, guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer were the first to, to say, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian theologian, was one of the first guys to plan an assassination plan on Hitler. Now, I'm not telling you to go plan an assassination plan or anything like that. I'm not justifying that. But I just need you to understand. Um, the people that were hiding the Jews were the Christians, again. And Hitler did say this. I want to re read you this. This, was, this is in the Holocaust Museum. It says, in defending myself against the Jews, I am acting for the Lord. He did say that, said Hitler. The difference between the church and me is that I am finishing the job. That's what this man said. So I, I, I want you to understand something. Um, that's about the thinnest veil of Christianity he could stand behind. Because if you know anything about Nazism, you know anything about what they believed, it was actually rooted and based in paganism. It was, a, it was, a, it was like a, a pagan superstition that the Aryan people were somehow this great master race of people. And, and really, if you, if you look deep into Hitler's philosophy, it was based on Friedrich Nietzsche who was an atheist philosopher. He didn't believe in God. He wrote a book called God is Dead. And in his philosophy, this is what he did. Nietzsche was just taking atheism 
to its fullest logical extent. What he was saying was this. He was saying, okay, if there's no God and we really are just evolved animals, we're the highest of, on the evolutionary chain, then we owe it to our own species to continue evolving higher. And the only way we can evolve higher is if we eradicate the weaker gene pool. And he, what he was saying is, that, you know, if, if in nature the strong eat the weak, then we should do the same thing. We should eliminate the weak so that we can evolve to the superhuman. And Hitler read Nietzsche, and in the 30s, the intellectual elite, elite in Europe was sitting around drinking wine, listening to Wagner, reading Nietzsche, all thinking the same thing. Yeah, we got to evolve higher. And what Hitler did is he took his deep racial hatred of the Jews and he applied humanist, secular, Nietzschean thinking to it and said, therefore, the Jews, I don't like them. They're filthy. We need to get rid of their gene pool. And this is where Nazism comes from. It has nothing to do with Christianity. So you could go through... Most of, most of the wars they talk about, and they weren't, Christ, they weren't Christian wars at all. Now, I'll be honest. Like, How many of you would agree that probably the Crusades were an adventure in missing the point, right? Accept Jesus or die, right? I mean, that's kind of crazy. I don't think Jesus would have ever endorsed that. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, Jesus told Peter, Peter had a sword, right? You know, and the, the last night, Peter pulled the sword out to fight the, the guards that arrested Jesus. And he cut a dude's ear off. And you know he wasn't aiming for the dude's ear, right? He didn't pull a sword out and be like, I'll cut your ear off, man. <laughs> no, he was trying to cut his head off. And Jesus healed the man. And he looked at Peter and he said, put your sword away for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So you, you need to understand that. That there have been people that have, have done atrocities in the name of Jesus. But here's the thing. They would have never been something that Jesus stood for. And yes, Christians throughout human history have gone against the creed of Jesus. And here's what I want to understand. Christians are, and me, I am a hypocrite sometimes, and so are you. So let's go marching on. But listen, understand this. The real question for you, if you're a skeptic today, is this. Not whether Christians are hypocrites or not. We all know the answer to that. We all just admitted it to you. But was Jesus one? Because here's the thing. There's only three alternatives to who Jesus was. Jesus was either who he said he was, the Lord, Lord of all, God in human flesh, okay? Or he was a liar, and he was lying to everyone, and it was a giant hoax, and all his disciples died martyrs' deaths, painful, brutal, tortured martyrs' deaths for him. So that makes him a terrible person if he's a liar. Or he was crazy. He either had to be Lord, he had to be a liar, or he had to be a lunatic, right? That, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis proposed that argument. And I need you to understand something. There's no way he was a lunatic. Read the New Testament. Those are not the words of a madman, okay? There's, and, and then you have to decide, okay, Jesus was either who he said he was, or he was a big fat liar. He's got to be one or the other two, and that's your job to choose. And whether a Christian lived by his creed or not, it doesn't matter. Is who was Jesus? That's the real question we're asking today. See, um... Well, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get into that in a moment, but you, you, need, you need to know this. Um, throughout history, humans have been violent and oppressive. And yes, Christianity has got lumped into it, but I, I want to talk to you a, a little more about that because I think also 
um, we've been given a bad rap, okay? First and foremost, um, some of you are like, fine, fine, I, 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 I get it. Maybe not all the wars were Christian wars and they were thinly veiled. Most of them were political or for financial gain or whatever. Okay, sure, whatever. Jesus would have never approved of them. Um, but, Sean, you, you can't tell me that Christianity hasn't been oppressive. Like, think of what it does to women. And I, I, would, I would say, okay, I, I want to I go with you on that. But we, we, need to, we need to talk about real history for a moment. Do you know what, how every other culture in human history has treated women? Sometimes you look at it through your Western cultural lens. You go, oh, Christianity is so regressive and oppressive. Have you traveled the world? Have you seen how women are treated in other countries? See, here's the deal. I need you to understand this. In human history, women have always been pushed to the very bottom. And it wasn't until Christianity that actually women were viewed as equal. Your very thought of justice and human rights, do you know where that comes from? All men are, and women are created equal? It comes from Jesus. The Apostle Paul was the first person in human history to speak it or to write that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, all are one. The rest of the world never thought that way before. The reason Christianity grew in the first century is because it actually gave women a voice. And in any other culture, in any other place in history, you will find without Christianity, women, your place was get in the kitchen and cook me a pie. That's all it ever was. And it's only in Christianity that you've been given Equality. You need to understand that. Do you know where the women's, just in America alone, do you know where women, the, the suffragette movement started, the women's right to vote movement, women's rights started in little Pentecostal churches in the early 1900s? Because it was there they actually had a voice. Everywhere else in society it was get pregnant and be barefoot. But in the church they had a voice. And that's the reality of it. Now, now, you may go take a class and hear about how Christianity oppresses women, but that is not real history. Because you can't show me one other culture that has lifted women the way Christianity has. You can't show me one other person in human history that has lifted women the way Jesus did. So, you could go down the line, just take American history in general. Think of some, some of the, the great social movements in our history. The abolition of slavery. It was started by Christians. The civil rights movement started in Baptist churches. Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, Baptist preacher. We're going to baptize people today. He'd be like, bring it. He'd be in there with me, dunking people. You need to understand that. His whole concept of, of, of that, that, that God was going to make the valleys, raise the valleys up and bring the mountains down and bring people into equity. That came from the prophet Amos. It came from the prophet Isaiah. It came straight from this book. So, you have to understand. And I've been on just about every continent on this planet except for Australia and Antarctica. And I need you to know something. Everywhere you go on this planet, do you know who primarily provides the most health care for people? For women, for the poor, for, 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 for the downtrodden? It's Christians, the church. Do you know who provides education in just about every corner of the earth? It's Christians. It's the church. 
You, you need to know that. I remember when I went to Haiti right after the earthquake, hundreds of thousands of people displaced and dead. We went there. And um, we, we, we served people there, and the United Nations was there, and they were doing it in the name of whatever. And um, a year later, I came back, and I flew back to Haiti. I remember I was on the plane, and I asked, I asked the stewardess, because I was just curious, like, who goes to vacation in Haiti, right? You know, it, it, like going to Lemoore, unless you're going today. But anyway, so, <laughs> Kelly. Anyway, so, um, the, I digress. I'm on this plane. And I asked the stewardess, I go, hey, how many, like, Christian groups are on the plane right now? And she goes, well, we seat 386, um, and there's four doctors from Doctors Without Borders, so I don't know their faith, um, and then it's the rest of you. The whole plane. We're Christians going back to Haiti to serve the people. And you know, you know what? When the UN packed up and left, when UNICEF left Haiti, you know who was left to take care of the people? The church. But here's what I want you, I want to argue this to you if you're skeptic and you need to think about this, okay? Think rationally for a moment. When was the last time on the, on the news you heard a good story about the church? My tribe, pastors. Whenever a pastor is on the news, you know what we all do? We all go, oh no. Oh no, what'd he do? <laughs> what'd they do? Right? Or a church makes the news. It's like, oh no, what, what are they saying? What kind of stupid thing are they saying? Are they doing the blessing of the ARs and they're wearing bullet crowns and doing stupid stuff? I mean, th this is the stuff that gets headlines, but it's not what the church is doing around the world every day. You'll never hear about a person getting sober in our CR on Tuesday night on the news. You'll never hear about a marriage being brought back together in our marriage, our marriage mentoring ministry. You'll never hear about kids getting off drugs, kids not doing drugs because they found Jesus, people, people finding purpose in life, people serving in our city. You'll never hear about any of that. Think rationally for a moment. See, the truth of the matter is you could hold us to the standard of Jesus and we will fail. I, I will say that. We will, we will disappoint you. But you need to look at Jesus and who he was first. So this next point, I, I, I want you to understand. I wanna, actually, I want to read it. It's, it's from G.K. Chesterton. And if you don't know who G.K. Chesterton is, he actually was a, um, he wrote about 4,000 works about 100 years ago. He's long since dead. But C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and he read G.K. Chesterton's book, The Abolition of Man, and he decided, you know what, there must be a God. And then he began to speak to J.R.R. Tolkien about hobbits and whatever. I don't know what they were talking about. And uh, J.R.R. Tolkien kind of helped him back into the faith, and he became a believer in Jesus. But G.K. Chesterton said this about Christianity, and he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. See, and what he meant by that is that the truth of the matter is, is we'll never live up to Jesus' standard. And we have to live in grace. C.S. Lewis, he had, well, I'll get to it. Yeah, I'm going to read it now. He, he said this. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next, okay? It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in, in this. And what he, what he was saying is this, is that the very Christians that have changed the world by what they've done were the ones that were thinking the most of heaven. And it's the Christians, when we focus just on this world right here and this is all we got, we forget about our bigger purpose in life.
And um, this next point, the first one was for the skeptic. This one is for you if you're a believer in Jesus. I, I, ne- I need you to understand this. See, whenever um, Christianity really has done bad things, I, we have to be honest, it has done bad things in history. Really, it's done some stupid things. But whenever it has, it's been because Christianity has been in a position of political power. It's been at the top of the political chain. Okay, so point number two is this. True Christianity flourishes apart from political power. Let me explain to you what I mean. I'll give you a great example. So the very first time Christianity gained political power in human history was during the Roman Empire. The Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. He had a vision. He came to faith in Jesus. And because he was the emperor, he said, I am now a Christian. Therefore, all of Rome, you're all Christians. And they all went, all right, whatever. They had no idea what Christianity was. As a matter of fact, he baptized his whole army, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. He baptized them all in an instant and said, you're all Christians now because I said so. I don't know what that baptism looks like. I'm pretty sure he didn't dunk them all. He must have had like Christian bishops or something with super soakers going, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I, I mean... I don't know how you do that, but he basically just baptized them all. They didn't really believe in Jesus. They were just told, you're a Christian now. And here's what happened. Because it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, people who wanted power knew their way into power if they become part of the religious establishment. And what happened is over the next thousand years, you you saw people become bishops, cardinals and popes who knew nothing about Jesus whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they weren't even Christian, many of them, because they were just climbing to power. And whenever Christianity has been in power, it has been terrible for humanity. You have to understand that. So those of you that are waiting for us to win the White House back or win the Congress back, stop it. (laughs) Do you not know history? Dr. Tony Campolo, who's a sociologist at Eastern University, he said this, mixing Christianity and political power is like mixing manure and ice cream. Only one of them gets ruined. Think about it. The manure, if it's got ice cream in it, you throw it on your grass, it still works fine. But it does not make very good ice cream, does it? See, and that's the truth of the matter. Think about our country. Do you know why many of you are here today? It's because our forefathers were being oppressed by the state church of England, the church that was in political power, and they were persecuting the Baptists and the, and, and the other, um, the, the Congregationalists and the, these other groups of Puritans. So they left England to get away from the state church that was in power for religious freedom. The very fact we believe in separation of church and state, and by the way, that's not in the Constitution. It's called the Establishment Clause. It was actually based on a letter that the Danbury Baptist wrote to Thomas Jefferson. If you don't know that, people always say, oh, separation of church and state, it's in the Constitution. You don't know what you're talking about. The truth of the matter is, it was a letter that Baptists wrote because they didn't want the United States to establish like this, the, the United States church. Because the last time that happened in England, it went bad for the Baptists. The Baptists were killed because they refused to baptize their babies. See, and every time the church has been in political power, it's gone bad. Now, has, have Christians used the political process to do good? You bet. William Wilberforce helped stop the slave trade in England. 
But you have to understand, the way of Jesus isn't climb to the top and get in charge. As a matter of fact, look what it says in Philippians 2. It says this in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Imagine right now if you had all the power of God. What would you do with it? Most of us, including myself, the first thing we would do would not be world peace. We'd be like, I want a Ferrari, or you do, I want to be skinny, or I want to be, it'd be something selfish. You might do the other stuff later. Some of you wouldn't be sitting next to that person anymore. You'd be like, boom, they're gone. (laughs) Mad at you. You'd bring them back, right? But anyways. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Death on a cross, a criminal's death. Therefore, so so listen, instead of taking the God position, he took the lowest position. And you know what God does when when you take the position of a servant? This is the principle. It's called lift. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the whole principle of Christianity is that you surrender power and serve, and then God lifts you up. It's not climb to the top and make policy and change the world. It's always from beneath. And that's the Jesus way. So true Christianity has always changed the world for the better. I want you to understand that. The sociologists, even if secular ones, will, will tell you about this. It's, it's a concept called lift, Christian lift. That many times, most times, when true Christianity enters into a culture, the culture rises. It rises socioeconomically. It rises morally. It rises in how it treats one another. All, all of those things. And you see it happen time and time again. If you go to um, India or you go to Mozambique or you go somewhere in Africa, whenever Christianity enters into a slum, when it's at its purest form, you watch the slum rise above the other ones. They rise socioeconomically, education-wise, all of that. A great example, I was in um, India 10 years ago, and I visited a leper colony. And I went to this leper colony, and um, while I was there, it was, it was amazing because, you know, it was like this little, it was beautiful. And they told me the story of it. They said, you know, the, this man and his, his wife, they're both orphans. Their parents died of leprosy. And when they um, became adults, the pastor of the orphanage married them. Um, you, it, there are arranged marriages in India, which that's a whole other sermon. But um, he married them and said, you guys are, were orphans to lepers, so you're going to go to this leper colony and you're going to pastor there. 
you're going to start a church. So it was actually the colony his mother and father had died in. So he went back to it, and he started this little church. And it's just a little tent, like a little pop-up tent. And that's where they met to start with. And all of a sudden, he started leading these lepers to Christ. And in a leper colony, it's not just people with leprosy. It's their family. Um, a common fallacy in the ancient world that leprosy was highly contagious is actually not. It's really hard to get, believe it or not. Um, and they, they started gathering as a church and they started believing in Jesus and pretty soon this church got some looms donated from I believe from China and they started making these blankets and instead of begging now these lepers were on the streets selling blankets and they were starting to make money pretty soon they discovered the internet they started selling these blankets online and before you know it um, these lepers that were sleeping on the ground on the street all of a sudden they all had little houses and then they, be, they built a medical clinic. They built a medical clinic in this little leper colony. So, and it had antibiotics in it and, and creams and medicines so that no leper would ever die of leprosy ever again in that colony. As a matter of fact, uh, within two to three generations, it would be eliminated completely in that colony. And it's because the Jesus people move in. Whenever true Christianity moves in somewhere, it lifts the culture so true Christianity flourishes apart from political power. It, it flourishes when it, when it, it serves. But I, I need you to know something about history. See, hi, history, you ever think about the word history? It's his story, right? His story. See, as Christians, we are not makers of history. We are made by his story. When you become a follower of Jesus, here's what happens. You step out of writing your own story and being the star of your own story to stepping into the story of God, the story that God has written for all eternity. Your story, if you're lucky, will last into your 90s. But God's story lasts for eternity, and it goes and goes and goes. And God loves you so much, he's giving you that choice, whether, whether you want to step into it or not. And... Today, today, I want to challenge you to step into God's history. And I'll give you a great example of, of, of one way Christians have done that for years. And it's, it's called baptism. We have some people that are going to baptize today. And some of you may get baptized impromptu. You may be like, I'm going to do it in my clothes. But li and that will be awesome if you do. But li listen, I, I, want, I want to explain baptism for you for a second. Because really, baptism has been one of these moments in a Christian's life that... Um, is, was designed, one, for you to, to ignite your faith, but, but two, for you to, to make this public profession. So I'll give you an example. I, and I use this one a lot, so if you've heard it, bear with me. Okay? So I just took my wedding ring off. Does that mean I'm on the market? Holla! Look me up on Tinder, whatever. You know, no. It does not mean I'm off the market. Okay? Or I'm on the market again. I'm off the market. Okay? Does this ring... Make me married? No, this is just a ring, okay? But what makes a person married? Was it because I filled out a piece of paper and I gave it to the, the government of California and they said I was married? Is that what makes me married? No, right? See, some guys in the room, though, they're, like, they're nudging their, their girlfriend like, see, it's just a dumb piece of paper, I told you. Stop it and listen. Because, yes, it is a dumb piece of paper. What makes a person married? Thank you. It wasn't a rhetorical question, but I'm gonna, I was going to, I was given a dramatic pause. Um, so speaking technique, thank you though, Larry, I love him. So here's the deal. 
Um, what makes a person married, actually, it wasn't dramatic pause. I was trying to think of the word commitment, to be honest, um, is the commitment I made. Okay, I stood in front of, 20 years ago, Kelly Lusk. That's with a K, not a T, okay? Her last name is Lusk, L-U-S-K. Saturday night was like, whoo, risky, uh, risque. So I stood in front of her, and in my heart, I made a vow to her, I made a vow to God, and there was a whole bunch of people witnessing this. And it was the decision I made right here, and the vow I made to God and to her is the thing that made me married. This ring is the symbol that reminds me and tells everyone else that I belong to her and she belongs to me. That we made that vow to God. This is, this is the symbol, okay? So baptism for Christians has always been the event, like the wedding, the symbol, like the ring, that you've decided, instead of going your way, having your story, that you were going to enter into his story. It, it was your way of marking the day. And Jesus not only gives you the, he doesn't give you the option to do it. I'm going to tell you right now, he commands every Christian to do it. In the book of Acts, the earliest Christians all believed it. In the book of Acts, Peter preached to 3,000 people, and it says they were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we need to do? And he, he said, repent, metanoite, it's a Greek word, it means turn, you know, receive Christ, and be baptized. That was the next step. And see, um, for some people, they, you were baptized as a baby, and that's a beautiful thing. I want you to understand that. And um, the sentiment behind that was your parents were dedicating you to God. But it's almost like Constantine baptizing his soldiers. None of them actually made that choice. And at some point in your history, you have to make the choice and step into the water and obey God. That's your job. And I want you to understand something. If you're going to step into his story and live a life of faith, here's the thing. God is never going to give you this huge task unless you've been taking the little ones along the way. The little steps of obedience. And here's what I want you to know. The very first step of obedience for a Christian, when you make a conscious choice to follow Jesus, that next step is like, oh, I need to get baptized. It happened every time in Scripture. You find nowhere where babies were baptized. I have to tell you that. It's, it's nowhere in the New Testament. My friend, my good friend, he's a Presbyterian pastor, and we always joke, and I'll be like, dude, it's cool. You baptize your way. I baptize God's way. We're all good. And it's a beautiful thing he's doing. But really, it's a decision you make when you've decided to follow Jesus. So a lot of you have made a decision to follow Jesus. You got a bulb and you're like, that's it, I'm it. That's, I'm the light of the world. And you mark the day you, you decide to follow Jesus. That next step of obedience, that next small step is you get wet. You get baptized. Um, and I'll let you know, we're going to baptize people today. And if you're like, oh my gosh, I need to get baptized. And you want to do it today, we've got towels and you can extra shirts, stuff like that you can change into. And just so you don't feel weird, I'll get in in my clothes and baptize you. Because I'm Sean the Baptist. I'll do it like that, okay? I want you to know that. So that leads me to point number three. And it's this, guys. Baptism is part of your commitment. To write future history. God's not concerned with your past. 
any guilt you carry in this place, I want you to know when you become a believer in Jesus, the Bible says there's no condemnation in G- for those in Christ Jesus. It means the old is gone. And he only cares about your future. And the question is today for some of you, if you're a skeptic, is who is Jesus? Not who are Christians. <laughs> we can tell you who Christians are. We're a sorry bunch. But the Bible would say this too, that, that you're just as sinful as us. And you're just as separated from God as us. And you need God's grace and forgiveness. And you can't have it until you receive it. You know, if I, I don't have any money. But if I had a gift for you, I'd lay it on the table here. But you wouldn't get it till you came. It wouldn't be yours until you came and got it. For some of you, today's the day you do that. And you know God's knocking at the door of your heart. Sometimes God knocks at the door of your heart. It's just a real quiet thing, but it's persistent. But when you let him in, it turns into a rumble. It shakes your soul. There's others of you. Today's your day to get baptized, and you know. You're like, I got to do this. Don't, don't be afraid. Be courageous. Um, and come forward and do it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and then the band's going to play a song, and... Um, we're going to all sing. But while we're singing, if you feel like today's your day and you maybe today's the day you put your faith in Jesus, your first step is put invite him in. Say, Lord, I realize I'm separated from you and I need you. And come get a bulb. But maybe you've done that already and you know your next step, that small step is I gotta, I'm going to make the commitment. I'm going to baptize this, my coming out, that I'm part of the Jesus tribe now. I was my story, now I'm going with his story. And I want to encourage you to do that. So I'm going to crawl in the baptism in my clothes. So if any of you want to get baptized and you want to do it in your clothes, we got shirts and towels for you. You'll be fine. Some of you, I think you came planning because some of you came in swimsuits. So that's cool too. But I want you for a moment, all of you, to just bow your heads and be in the presence of God right now.